All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone is uh, getting set for a great weekend here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, wherever you are. Uh, I am Will Driscoll. I am the executive director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm thrilled to once again bring you another episode of our content platform, the Hall Call interview series. Now, before we get started, as always, I want to thank all of our Hall Call and Hall of Fame sponsors who you see over my shoulder, Priority Automotive, Optima Health, the Beck Foundation, Davis Business Appraisers, Hamilton Realty, White Claw Hard Seltzer, Davcon, and Priority Auto Sports Radio 94.1. We're able to do events like this and in-person events because of their support, so thank you to all of them. Well, today's Hall Call is, is going to be a great one. I can promise you that. We're going to take a, a look back at the life and legacy of a legendary football coach, George Allen. And to do that, we are joined by two very special guests today. First, we have Mike Richmond, author of multiple books detailing moments and personalities that have made the Washington Redskins, now Commanders franchise, history so special. His most recent book, George Allen, A Football Life, is a deep dive into the man who is the only head coach in NFL history with at least 10 years on the sidelines, not to have a losing season. George Allen, the football coach, is a 1998 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee and 2002 Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee. However, Mike is not our only guest today. As you can see, there's one other face in the Zoom, and that is the former governor of Virginia and U.S. Senator to Virginia, George Felix Allen. I learned that by reading the book, George Allen, A Football Life. George, of course, is the son of George Allen, the subject of today's Hall Call episode. So with all of that said, let me just start off by saying to both of you, thank you for joining us on today's Hall Call episode. Thank you so much, Will, for inviting me on. It's great to be with you. And we have two priori priority automobiles in our family. I know they'll <laughs> like hearing that. We do as well. <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and get this started. Um, obviously, for those who are watching and following along, if you have a question, feel free to throw it up on the stream and I'll, I'll see if I can get it over to either Mike or George. But Mike, let's start off with you. You have an extensive knowledge and history of covering the Washington Redskins, now commanders. What led you to this subject, to coach George Allen as the subject of your, your latest book? Sure thing, Will. Well, I grew up in the Washington area. I'm native Washingtonian. I uh, grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland. A DC suburb. So in 1971, when George Allen came here to coach the Redskins, I was 10 years old and I just became hooked on the team. I knew a little bit about the Redskins from the 60s, not a whole lot. And I remember my father taking me to a 1970 game, but it was really when George Allen came here in 1971 that I became fixated on that, on that squad. I mean, I, that 5-0 start in 1971, I mean, that uh, just excited everyone, including myself. And uh, on days when I didn't have a chance to catch those 71 games, I mean, I'd been running to the TV. I mean, I could at least get the end of it. Or, I mean, I, I want to know what was going on. And uh, and I would like live and die by how well that Redskins team did. And so followed the George Allen era. And then uh, I, of course, uh, saw Joe Gibbs won the glory, the real glory era. But then I chose journalism as a career. And uh, I've just kind of melded those two, those two interests together. I should also say I really gained a love for history as a kid. I mean, my my mother took me to so many museums in the Washington D.C. area, and as you know, there are many, many of them. And so the sports history. I mean, I I had those interests, and then I chose journalism as a career. Uh, writing came to write for newspapers and uh, other publications, and. Uh, actually, when Dan Snyder bought the team in 1999, I was on the scene. I was a reporter for the Associated Press, and I got to do internal work for the team, uh, 
many of my articles were published in Sports Illustrated magazine as a deal between the Redskins and SI. And one thing led to another. Uh, my first book, The Redskins Encyclopedia, was published in 2007, a full a 75 year look at the team from 1932 through the 2006 season. Then I did the Washington Redskins Football Vault a few years later, which is primarily a memorabilia book. I wrote the text for that. Uh, I did uh, in 2015, I did Joe Gibson Enduring Legacy uh, for his, um, I wrote that for his foundation, Youth for Tomorrow, but that's a, a gorgeous uh, four color book. And then um, I, I actually had it in my mind, somebody needed to write the definitive biography of George Allen. And I, I signed the contract uh, around the time that I finished the Gibbs book and uh, it dragged on for a few years, but then I really, I really got into gear uh, uh, like around 2018. And I just, I mean, uh, George, he knows this full well. I was rapid fire with those emails and, and phone call requests. And he was, he was like uh, always receptive and I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, and of course, uh, Bruce and Jennifer, but it, it was George mostly who, who was my primary contact. And now it's come to fruition. George Allen, a football life, you know, has hit the shelves. We are just two days removed from the actual official publication date. Well, you mentioned the name of the book is George Allen, A Football Life, and, and it's it's almost 500 pages, but don't let that discourage you from buying it because it is packed full of just information, unique facts about the coach, the person, the family man. And and George, the next question is going to come to you when you, you just heard Mike say that somebody had to write the definitive bio on your father. What were your thoughts when Mike came to you with this idea? Generally, since he was a reporter, I was fearful. <laughs> uh, of what he would do and uh, make this scandalous because my father didn't really get along very well with the media. And uh, as Mike knows, and that's in this, this book, he had some some writers that were fair, but most uh, were not. Uh, so that was fearful. Uh, and so, but Mike was saying, here's what I want to do. And he's asking questions. And, and really another big assist was from my wife, Susan, who found all sorts of pictures and, and different things uh, to, to help Mike with his book. And uh, the, the, the way that the book uh, was is presented and reading it, this is a great way of writing a book in that each chapter is its own story. Mm -hmm. In the midst of the depression of his early days in life and his family and, and all of that, it's it's telling history and what was going on in the in in the United States when he was very young and and from a very let's say low income hard working hard scrabble family and uh, and that's probably why he had his his work ethic as you either worked or you starved and would do anything and no job was too small he that was his view and whether it was assistant equipment manager or backup punter or whatever it would be on the team, they all had a job to do. And so that that's what I think this book's fun to read is that it's it's uh, it's insightful and all the games and the players and the intrigue and all of that's great, but it's also in the backdrop of what was going on in the 60s and 70s and, and so forth. In fact, you talked about those first five games in, in, in 1971 that the Redskins won. One of those game balls, it was the the the, uh, the Redskins beat the Cowboys uh, 20 to 16. And when my father went into the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, 
I, my mother and I, my mother was still alive then. We said, what, what can we give him? We gave him the game ball, wherever you have that wheel. It is actually on display in town center of Virginia beach. Oh, right? there you are. It's a 2016 <laughs> game. And, 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 you know, and so Mike describes that game in those first five games and, and all the things for our family, we moved. That's when we moved to Virginia. I hadn't been in Virginia. We'd been in everywhere else in the Southeast, um, in Tennessee and Georgia and Florida and Louisiana and so forth. And my father was a scout as well as coach for the Bears when I was a kid. Uh, but that that first season, that was it was just magical. And uh, it, and that's that's where he got the the future is now quote was Warner Wolf asking him, why are you trading for all these over the hill gang is what they were called, all these players from from the Rams and, and other teams. And uh, and my father said, this team, the Redskins, they haven't been to the playoffs since the 1940s, like 25 years. He says, you're worrying about the future? The future is now. And that's where it came from, was actually retort to, to Warner Wolf and, and the Washington media saying, oh, you're trading draft choices. What about the future of a, of a losing franchise? Well, how about winning now? And they did. What's amazing is you reading through the book, you know, you we've all met people in our lives who say they love football. You know, I've, you meet somebody who says I'm the biggest football fan there is. I don't know if I've ever read about anybody who loved football the way your father did. And, and this question could go to either one of you, but football was so ingrained in his personality. Where did that love of the game develop? I'll let Mike say that he wrote the book. I came to uh, understand that in his youth, he had a love for sports and it wasn't just football. Right. I mean, he, he was, he was a good basketball player, ice hockey. He played a lot of ice hockey as a kid. So he had this uh, he, he multi talented uh, set of, of, of skills as an athlete. And um, so as a kid, he played various sports and then, as he uh, uh, he entered college, I, I think that's when it really set in that he wanted to do something something football related. Uh, he when when he got to Michigan and as he was uh, he wrote his master's thesis on scouting in football. I mean that that says it all right there. He wanted to to pursue. It wasn't the, like the most ideal job to, to select at the time. It particularly wasn't ideal to select during the Great Depression. But he said if I could just make something of it make a career of it. I mean, I just, I hope I can make a go of it. And so, yeah, by the time he got to college, uh, did that master's thesis on scouting. And then this is typical George Allen thinking out of the box. He went to Fritz Chrysler when, when he was uh, going for his master's degree. He went to Fritz Chrysler. He said, listen, I'd like to be an assistant on your staff. And Chrysler was the head coach of the, of the Michigan football team at the time, which was an uh, amazing team, one of the top teams in the country. They played in the Rose Bowl. And he went to Chrysler. He said, I'd love to be a, an assistant on your staff. And Chrysler said, no, no, we don't have a spot for you. So then George Allen, he got into Chrysler's office again, uh, made an appointment to see him. So he said, listen, coach, um, I'll pay you if you give me a spot on that team, if you allow me to be an assistant coach. So again, Chrysler says no. But however, uh, we're going to pay you. And, and that meant they were just starting up the, the midget, the 150-pound midget football team which was his very first true uh, assistant coaching job. Uh, they, he coached the uh, midget football team that one season before getting the job at Morningside. So I think this, this love of sports was born in his youth. And then uh, he just, he chose football 
by the time he got to college, he knew that that's the sport he wanted to pursue. And he, he knew he didn't have the athletic ability to play uh, on the professional level, but he knew that um, he still wanted to be involved in the game in some way. And he chose the game of football. George, you're quoted in the book as saying football became like a family business for us. And sure. obviously with, with some of the, the stops that he had, because it wasn't just the NFL, he was at Morningside uh, University or college and then Whittier out in California. So he, it, these, this was not a very orthodox trip to, to head coaching success. It was very unorthodox, but you said that football was like a family business and it really seemed like the family rallied around this passion that your dad had for the game. Yeah, my father would always say family's the most important thing, and we'd move around. Uh, you know, the only other people who move around more than football coaches are those who serve in our armed services. They're always getting stationed somewhere, and people, you know, from Sioux City, Iowa, where my parents were married, and my mother's from Tunisia, North Africa, of all places. She meets him in Sioux City, Iowa, about as opposite of the Mediterranean as you can be. And uh, I mean, there's fun stories about that. He, he, he'd he be diagramming plays with X's and O's and arrows on a napkin. And my mother thought this, isn't this romantic? These are, you know, arrows and all this moving around. No, these, he's diagramming plays. And then uh, then he gets a head coaching job at Whittier. The Poets, you can't think of a more less fierce name. The Fighting Poets will kill you with rhyme. Uh, and then he, you know, he gets fired. He's with the Rams. He worked at a car wash. That's the first job I remember him having in the San Fernando Valley. And then he gets hired by uh, coach uh, and owner, Papa Bear Hallis with the Bears. And we go on, on literally on Route 66 from L.A. to Chicago. And he was a scout as well as a, a assistant coach for the Bears. Fortunate, looking back on it, I was so fortunate that my father would take me to training camp with the Bears training camp, which was in Rensselaer, Indiana, at St. Joseph's College out in the middle of cornfields. The only thing to do there was there was a quarry to swim in and a dirt track. And that's where I started liking stock car racing. The first driver that turned the car all the way over uh, in a wreck would get $5 uh, with it. And But the, the family was always together. And so for for me and and my brothers going to training camp was a little tougher for for uh, Jennifer because you can't have a girl at training camp you know the way we were but uh, the family was always united it's you know every Sunday everyone is concentrating if it's a home game you know we'd be there if it's an away game you're watching it on TV unless my father took one of us to one of the away games with him. Uh, and so it's just so uniting and the only constant in our whole family was football. And, and we were all very united, even though my father would spend 18 hours a day on football. We all understood it. That was the mission. You had to be prepared. And he was he he was meticulous in his preparation and understanding the tendencies and what what other teams would do in certain down and distance situations and and that's why his teams, they, they may not have been the strongest or fastest, but they were smart, they were prepared, and they didn't make mistakes. You, you hit on that. You hit on a point that really kind of highlights his attention to detail. He really admired Vince Lombardi and the Packers teams. Not that they were great at a lot of things. It's that they were great at a few things. And those were the those were the things, the plays, the assignments that he that you knew going up against the Packers they were not going to make mistakes on this. And so he really kind of took that 
into his approach as a head coach. And where did that attention to detail, how did that develop? And did it did it cause friction with some of his players as, as he moved further on into his career? Mike, I'll, I'll throw that one at you. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, Lombardi was one of his top rivals and, and he, he had a great, one of his top coaching rivals. He had a great admiration for him. And um, uh, as far as the, the attention to details, I think that's another aspect of George Allen, his personality that stemmed from his youth. He, that meticulous uh, trait in him, as, as George mentioned earlier, that just the way he approached things, everything to the best of his knowledge, everything had to be covered. And he just carried that forward in life. And by the time he got to uh, actually his first, um, uh, his big assistant coaching job with the Chicago Bears, they could see it then because uh, when he took over as the head defensive coach in 1962, Clark Shaughnessy, uh, he was um, uh, having an antagonistic relationship with Hallis and he just parted ways. He, uh, he, he fled. So, so then um, George Allen was tapped to take over and, I'm Ed Obradovich, a great uh, defensive tackle of the Bears at the time. I remember him telling me, listen, we got an encyclopedia from George Allen. I mean, this is this thing was huge. You know, he had covered everything, typhoons, hurricanes, you know, any any type of situation that could happen. He was ready for it. And that was him. And he, he just took that uh, that type of approach with him when he got his first head coaching job with the Rams. His, his practices were long and tedious. And particularly in, in Los Angeles, in the Southern California heat, the players didn't like it. I mean, uh, Deacon Jones has been quoted as saying, I mean, those practices were a bitch. And they, <laughs> they really were. I mean, they they were long, hard practices. And he took that forward with him. His practices were long, from what I understand, with the Redskins. But so many of those guys were, were old, you know, on the older side. They were really true veteran players. And he had a lot of veterans with the Rams, too. When he got to Washington, I don't think it, he – worked them as hard as he did in L.A., even though taking over the Redskins was the same as the L.A. They were both mediocre to bad teams. But I didn't get the sense that those players in Washington were uh, – they they knew they were long practices, but I don't think they were overworked in any of those uh, regular season practices. Although Terry Hermeling did tell me a story, Redskins offensive tackle, he told me a story that in a training camp one year uh, at Carlisle in Pennsylvania, uh, George Allen was working them very hard. It was like – you know, 21 days straight of, of practice. And, and we finally had a rebellion and we said, you know, nobody said a thing in, in practice one morning and he finally released us. We all went to DC that weekend and had a great time. But um, so yes, very meticulous, detail oriented. As the saying goes, he wanted to know everything possible about the opposing team. He wanted to know, know them better than they knew themselves. Now that's really, you know, that's a stretch, but that was his approach. That was his goal. And uh Yeah. And, and showed on the field. One thing that I really learned through reading this book is I knew George Allen and his success as a coach, but I didn't realize the role that he also played as an executive. And, and that even goes to his job prior to being a head coach with the Bears. He drafted, he's responsible for Dick Buckus and Gail Sayers becoming these legendary players with the Bears because he is the one who, who recommended drafting them. Right. But then you get into the head coaching gig and it was a revolving door. He His philosophy was definitely, I'm going to rely on veterans and not build through youth. And that that ruffled some feathers, not just internally with teams, but also with the league office. Uh, George, do you remember when Pete Rozelle fined him for reckless trading? Yeah, 
Yeah, I remember all sorts of fights with the NFL. Uh, he, he was a maverick. He was unconventional. Of all the owners that he got along best with was Al Davis because they both were nonconformist, uh, anti-establishment types who did things their own way. And uh, and the and you know the, on preparation, I remember for, for and then special teams was some he was, had the first special teams coach ever. And Dick Vermeil's in this book. It was the first special teams coach ever and wrote a great forward in this book. Saw him at the Hall of Fame this this summer. Uh, when we got his ring uh, that they gave to the family uh, and Dick Butkus, who was there too. And he was talking about all his telling me stories about how my father was trying to trade for him when he went to the Rams and even with the Redskins, but he was by the Redskins time, he was too injured. But the first thing I said to Dick Butkus, when I saw him, I said, you know, that 1965 draft, no one's ever had a better draft. That the Bears in 65, Gale Sayers, Dick Butkus, and they also had a guy named Steve DeLong, who played uh, tight end at Tennessee, but he's from Virginia Beach. But he's Virginia, Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee, Steve DeLong. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. He went, went to the Chargers. So it wasn't just drafting players like, like and he drafted uh, uh, Mike Ditka and, uh, and many others, greats with the Bears. Uh, but it wasn't just drafting them. In those days, you had to sign them because the AFL was going from 1960 to 66. And just drafting wasn't enough. You actually had to get them signed. The Chiefs wanted to get Gale Sayers naturally from Kansas. And uh, I forgot who drafted Butkus, but he signed with the Bears. But the, my father's view of, of the veterans was that he could count on them, that uh that they were they they were people who had experience and understood it. His his practices were hard. Heck, the practices I went through from high school to college and all that, we'd have three a day practices. And I was so happy at, at, at UVA that a trainer named Joe Geek would actually give us water. So I think there's been an evolution in coaching that you don't have people just passing out dehydrated uh, at practices, and so you get them some water that has some salt in it, and the and the invention of Gatorade uh, as a concoction. So I, I think he evolved with the game. The fact that he, he started off, you know, in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and then his final year of his life teach, uh, coaching young people at Long Beach State. Uh, and But he, he felt, and I talked to him before he died. I was out there for Thanksgiving in California. We watched the Virginia Tech UVA game on Thanksgiving, and he was saying, oh, gosh, how did George Welsh ever win these games? Our DBs at Long Beach State are better than him, and that Virginia Tech team, they're fired up. He could see it right from the beginning. They were wearing all maroon or something. He says, that team's ready to play, and, and Virginia Tech upset UVA. That was a good Virginia team that year under Co Coach Welsh, who my father had a good relationship and mutual aberration alongside him, but he, he was one who recognize there's certain things that stay the same, that players need discipline, they need guidance, they need preparation, they need they need love uh, to, to motivate them. And so certain things uh, are true and endure while the game, you know, and the tactics and the rules and the equipment and the practice procedures may change. There are certain things that uh, just stay, stay the same. They're like eternal verities or eternal truths that, Players need that guidance. They need that discipline. They need the endless preparation. The reason practices would be long because he'd say, unless you run perfect plays, he'd call it. 
And, and unless you run this play, we're going to run this play until you run it perfectly. And that would be a motivation. All right, let's do this right. Let's not have to run this darn play 18 times. Well, when, when you read the book, Mike, there's there's so much about his philosophy as a coach and just the moves. I mean, the the, the moves and his, his approach to being an executive and a team builder were very unique. But he was also a very unique motivator. And he wasn't the in-your-face, scream-at-you type coach. He was more methodical with his approach. But one thing that I found very interesting was we, as we sit here, we know the Washington-Dallas rivalry is top-notch when it comes to NFL. 50 years ago, that was not the case. Can we look at George Allen's influence as being the genesis of the Cowboy-Commanders rivalry? We, I, I wouldn't say that it was the actual genesis. They had a rivalry in the 60s. It, it wasn't what it was when George Allen came on board in 1971 in D.C. In the Sonny Jurgensen uh, era of the offensive explosion uh, that the, the Redskins were showing at the time, they played some some fascinating games. I mean, 34-31, 31-30. Uh, uh, so th they had a series of very close games. and there, So there was a rivalry back then. Um, but when, when George Allen came to D.C. in 1971, I mean, that rivalry intensified several fold. I mean, he had this just this antip antipathy for the Cowboys uh, dating back to, I guess, around the time they started coaching in L.A. in 1966. Interestingly, um, he, he made a deal with uh, with Tom Landry. The Cowboys practiced in Thousand Oaks, California. So when Allen coached the L.A. Rams, the two teams scrimmaged in the preseason. They got to know each other really well. But all along, uh, George Allen felt that the, the Cowboys gained favoritism from the league because of the relationship between Pete Rozelle and Tech Schramm, Rozelle being the NFL commissioner and Schramm being the, uh, the Cowboys executive. Uh, those two had worked together with the L.A. Rams in the 1950s. They knew each other well. So uh, George Allen always thought there was some uh, conspiracy going on uh, that between those two that that ended up uh, giving the Cowboys favoritism. Case in point, in 1971, the first three Redskins games that year were against NFC East teams on the road. I mean, that would be incon inconceivable today. That just wouldn't happen. But that was, you know, George Allen had this suspicion that Roselle and Shram had cooked that up to set the Redskins back to give, you know, have them uh, let them have a tough start to that first season with Allen in DC, but no, I mean, he won those first three games, third one, of course, gets Cowboys that 20 to 16 win. And then uh, first five games overall, but he really intensified the rivalry. It just got really, by the time of the 1972 NFC championship game, it was so bitter. And I think this was, this was all uh, for real. I mean, th those players disliked each other. There were accusations of, uh, of dirty play, mutual accusation, accusations of dirty play, uh, Dyron Talbert, who was uh, Allen's right-hand man for getting under the Cowboys' skin. I mean, he would make comments like, uh, oh, Roger Staubach can't read defenses or Roger Staubach wears skirts. So, yeah, and actually Roger Staubach, interestingly, uh, I interviewed him at the Hall of Pro, Pro Football Hall of Fame one year about that. He said, you know, George would say these things and they would, they would really, really affect us heading into a game. So that, that strategy worked. But Tom Landry wouldn't allow us to say anything. You know, he was that whole – team was so cerebral and so corporate like you know that was the exact opposite of george allen who's who's you know this extroverted person in terms of you touched on motivation mm -hmm. i mean absolutely motivation the rah-rah 
you know, uh, three cheers for the Redskins in the locker room, getting those those players, telling them before games that the game rests on your shoulders. A number of players would tell me that that played a major factor in how they played in the game. Rusty Tillman, uh, the great Redskins uh, special teamer. Uh, Bill Malinchek, another special teamer. He loved both those guys, loved playing for George Allen for that very reason, because of his motivational skills. If I could, Will, I just want to expound on the, the point previously about um, George Allen it, with his uh, talent for drafting players versus his preference for veterans as a coach. And that is a question I actually posed to Bruce because that really made me curious why he had such a keen eye for talent as the head talent scout for with the Chicago Bears. Um, Ditka in 1971, Hall of Famer today. He drafted Ronnie Bull in 1962, NFL uh, NFL Player of the Year in 62. I'm sorry, NFL Rookie of the Year in 62. Then the 65 draft with uh, uh, Sayers and um, Butkus, as uh, George mentioned earlier, uh, DeLong, and also there was a guy named uh, Jim Nance who opted to play for the um, the Patriots in the AFL, and DeLong obviously opted to play in the AFL as well. But that draft goes down as one of the greatest in NFL history. And George Allen is one of the greatest general managers in NFL history for everything he did. Three, three future hall of famers, uh, two of whom uh, entered the hall of fame uh, on their first ballot in, in Sayers and, and Butkus. Uh, but then I asked Bruce, well, you know, why then, why, why is preference for veterans as a head coach? And it was that future is now mentality. He knew when he got to the NFL, this was 1966. I think the pressure was really building on coaches at the time to, you know, it wasn't like today, you know, uh, two years and you're done. I don't think it was that bad. But but George Allen knew the pressure was there. He wanted to win right away. He thought veteran players, they were the means to doing that. And in fact, one perfect example of that is when Rosie Greer, one of the fearsome foursome, went down with an injury in the 67 preseason, George Allen being the detail-oriented coach and knowing who's out there. Back then, of course, the technology of today didn't exist then. He had his Rolodex, and um, he had Roger Brown's name there. And he immediately acquired Roger Brown, the great defensive tackle, and the fearsome foursome just kept rolling along. That was George Allen. And as I joked in the book, I said, oh, he must have had Roger Brown on speed dial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Roger Brown, had he's another great one who just passed away. Yeah. Uh, had a great, had still does have a great restaurant. I assume it's still uh, open. Down in Portsmouth. Portsmouth. And, uh, you know, that it, I'm going to say, yeah, there was a conspiracy in the league against my father. Roselle was a good buddy of Dan Reeves, who father, fired my father. And the player, players had a revolt and they had to hire him back for the final two years and then fired him again. So Roselle was a good buddy of, of Dan Reeves. And so those first five games, those first three games on the road is as and scheduling to harm them is, is not a coincidence. I think it is, it was a conspiracy. In well, fact, Roselle even fired my father. The first special teams head coach, a special teams coach was Dick Vermeil. The second was, was Marv Levy. And, and when Marv Levy was with the Redskins, they had a Monday night game. And my, you're supposed to introduce offense or defense. So my father introduced the special teams. The league fined him for that uh, with it. But the special teams played out of their mind, busting wedges, whether it's Wysocki or Rusty Tillman or Malinchek or Eddie Brown. I mean, some of the special teams. And, and, and now every team has special teams coaches, but that was the advantage. The other big difference with the Cowboys, and Mike alluded to it in that rivalry, 
yeah, they they really did despise each other. And but there was such a difference in philosophy. My father was building the team, not through the draft, which was the way you're supposed to do it. And the Cowboys are very taciturn, stolid, corporate, cold. Uh, my father's very enthusiastic and he's building a team through trades. And so you had two and both both were successful in their own ways. But my father's way was was the unconventional way and had the enthusiasm that you had these older guys, you know, all jacked up just like college and high school players. And, and so there were were differences. And my father did have a good judge of talent. And he also had a good judge of the great people he had around him, his scouts and his assistant coaches who had to work just as hard as he did. And in fact, when I was governor and putting together my cabinet, I remembered what my father would say. He says, I don't want to have to spend time coaching my coaches. The offensive line coach needs to know what he's doing, the quarterback coach, the D-line coach, and so forth. And so when I assembled a cabinet, I wanted people who knew more in there. We all knew what my promises were, what needed to get done. But Rob Martinez knew more about transportation than I did. And Kay James knew more about welfare reform ideas than I did. We all knew the philosophy, the promises, but I wanted a cabinet who knew more than I did. And uh, and we called it a competitiveness cabinet. And uh, if I was the smartest one in the room, we're not gaining anything. You won't that talent. And, and fortunately, I was able to accumulate uh, or uh, recruit, so to speak, good people. But my father, through the years, just had some great assistant coaches who became head coaches and just and some who weren't head coaches still were just outstanding individuals who are dedicated and could be trusted. And his last year even had Willie Brown, the Hall of Famer, Raiders great, as an assistant coach at Long Beach State. He had Roman Gabriel. And, and when you talk about a family, I have to mention my sister. Her first kid, uh, she named Roman after Roman Gabriel. And Deacon Jones, who we all called Big Brother, he starts yelling at her. What do you mean name your kid after a quarterback? Your father's a defensive coach. He still hated quarterbacks. And, and so she had another child and named him Deacon. Uh, so so the in a roundabout way, uh, the family connections, traditions continue. We, we got time for just a couple more. And, and this is the conversation that could go on for hours because it, it's such a it's such an interesting topic. He was such an interesting man. But we, we've talked about his his impact as a coach on the field, his impact as an executive. He had issues with management. It, it, a lot of the relationships ended poorly with the Bears, with the Rams and with the with the Redskins at the time. With all of that said, and when you put all of all of that into a bucket and his on-field success and his success as, a, as an executive, what is the lasting legacy of George Allen, the football coach, on modern-day football? Go ahead, um, Mike. Sure. Um, I think with a 7-12 uh, overall winning percentage, uh, he is right now the number three coach with at least 100 career victories uh, for, for that winning percentage. Uh, John Madden being first and uh, Lombardi being two. So that's certainly a major part of his legacy. Never had a losing season in the NFL in 12, season, then you, 12 seasons. Then you add these two seasons in the USFL. Never had a losing season in 14 total years of pro coaching. Um, but also he was an innovator, tremendous innovator. I mean, introducing 
uh, all the schemes he did on defense, the uh, nickel and dime defenses. He had so many, he's had these creative blitz packages on defense. I mean, he, he just was a, a mastermind when it, when it came to defensive schemes. And then what he did for the, the special teams aspect of the game. I mean, he really made special teams special, as, as George mentioned earlier, introducing his special teams players, wanting them to get the recognition that they deserved and uh, hiring uh, Vermeil as one of, one of the first uh, special teams coaches in the NFL. So that facet of the game, he really took to a new level. So uh, his when you look at his record, his, his undefeated seasons, everything he introduced to the NFL, uh, defense special teams, that, that really is his lasting legacy. Yes, he did have the antagonistic relationships with Dan Reeves and, and Edward Bennett Williams. And there was certainly kind of a similar pattern there. Uh, and I think in large part, it stemmed from his, from his spending habits, mm -hmm. uh, going after so many veteran players who, who didn't come cheap. I mean, he he paid. And and, and with the Rams, he uh, George Allen had full control of the of the active roster. He didn't have control of the of the draft like Reeves did, but he had control of the active roster. And um, so he, he spent a lot of money for those players uh, bringing them in, but he wanted to win immediately. And he did the same thing with the Redskins too, um, just to spend, spend, spend for, for those veteran players, some of whom barely saw any time on the field, such as Maxie Vaughn. And also um, starting up Redskins Park, another part of George Allen being a tremendous innovator. It was a state of the art complex when it first opened in 1971, no other no other NFL team had a, a training facility like Redskins Park. But that did, that wasn't cheap either. That was five hundred thousand dollars, which was a lot of money at the time. So he spent, spent, spent. And that, of course, that's when Edward Bennett Williams made that that uh, comment, that memorable comment at the welcome home luncheon. I gave him an unlimited budget and he exceeded it. So that Redskins Park really prompted that. So that that's a major part of his legacy as well. Just introducing that that training facility and uh, the, his workaholic nature, all of those you, you factor into to how George Allen is remembered today. George, you were actually out at the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony this year. Uh, a shout out to Rondé Barber, fellow Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, I got to I got to see his 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 mother as well. I said, great thing about the Hall of Fame stories is that how so often the mothers mm -hmm. are so important. And I, I was talking at the hotel and, and Rondé's mother was there. He went to Cave Spring, you know, in the Roanoke Valley area. So yeah, Rondé was in, which was great. But but they they gave you the, the ring for, yeah. for dad's induction back in 2002. And, and so just kind of wrapping it up, wrapping up the conversation, talking about his legacy. This is a current day event with, you know, recent recent players who are now getting inducted how do they view your dad's legacy in in the modern annals of nfl well very well uh and, and was one of my father's great trades was for kenny houston and kenny houston's in the hall of fame and we were talking there and dick vermeil was there and we we're talking and harold carmichael talking about pat fisher hitting him in the ribs uh in the games and so forth and you know i and butts just passed away another good guy and Another good free agent my father got is John Riggins. That you just run into these these folks, and uh, it it was really something. In that, when my father got into the Hall of Fame it was two thousand two. He had passed away, and I was asked by the family to do the acceptance of 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 it. And Deacon Jones was the presenter 
which was a tremendous honor. In fact, Deacon Jones gave, of course, a passionate uh, introduction. I got, I got up and I said, uh, thank you, Deacon. You're the best darn defensive end who's ever played the game. And the crowd starts booing. It sounds like they're booing. I said, oh, I've been booed in speeches. <laughs> but they were yelling out Bruce, Bruce for Bruce Smith because Jim Kelly was part of that class. Yeah. And so in those days, they, they wouldn't give you a jacket. They wouldn't give you a ring. Kenny Stabler got inducted just a few years ago and he had passed away and his daughter was making an issue out of why don't we get a patch or a ring or a jacket or whatever. And Mark Davis, uh, son of Al Davis said, no, these players ought to get, or the family members ought to get a ring. So they invited me as the oldest member of the Allen family uh, to come back to get it for a ring presentation at halftime at that the opening game and, and my brother Bruce was with me and and I have the ring right here it's a hall of frame let's see if I can get it up there but that's what it looks like uh, it doesn't look very good on a screen like this but that was a great honor and get to see a lot of the great folks and hear great stories of, of people who are inspirations in fact this right here behind me is a plaque that says if not let me make sure I got it right. Yeah. If if not us, who? If not now, when? Those are the words of action. That plaque was given to my father by President Ronald Reagan when he asked my father to be uh, head of the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports. And when my father passed away, my mother gave it to me. She said, you should have it. I'd have it on my mantle at the Capitol at Richmond, my office in the Senate, and keep it now. And I think those that's what you get from this book uh, that Mike Richmond meticulously wrote in, I think, a very readable way. And you can read chapter by chapter. Each chapter is its own story. But I think it's a it's a it's a it's a motivational way of saying that everyone's got their own strengths, their own talents. Use it to the best of your ability. You don't need to be a pack mule. You can do things your own way if you're prepared, if you work hard you're diligent, surround yourself with people who have the same sort of motivation and spirit, and uh, and you can succeed in life and, and have that consistency and, and that fighting spirit. Uh, and that's that's why I like this book. That's I mean, that's how I grew up. We grew up in it, you know, and with a bunch of characters like Dyer and Talbert, who would say things that I'm not going to say on your podcast, or or good old Doug Atkins, who gave me chewing tobacco at age eight just to see if I'd throw up soon and uh, and so forth. But I mean, there's just I was really blessed to grow up with those folks. And looking back at it, they were they were like you know uncles and and family members. And his teams were very family oriented. Everyone he cared about the their wives and their kids and what they were doing. And and there was that togetherness that I think is also a, a good spirit to have in any endeavor, whether it's a running the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, a business or or a sports team. Well, we we certainly appreciate it. We love stories here at the Hall, whether it's past, present, future of sports in Virginia. And this is definitely one of the most interesting. And, and I just want to thank both of you for taking the time to help share that story of Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee George Allen today. So thank you both for your time on today's Hall Call. Thank you very much, Will. All right, Will, you keep winning.
We're going to try. And I, you know what? Uh, from the book, I'm going to probably go home and have a bowl of ice cream because I know that that's what dad would like to do. <laughs> yeah, I follow that, that's, a, that's a tease to anybody who hasn't read the book yet. I'm not going to give you the details. <laughs> he'd, eat, he'd eat ice cream, but drink skim milk. <laughs> that's right. Again, for those, as we wrap up, the book is George Allen, A Football Life. I'd like to thank Mike Richmond, the biographer of George Allen and former governor of Virginia, George Allen, for their time today. The book is available wherever books are sold. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in. We had a, we had a lot of good activity up on the stream. And, uh, and for those who will listen and follow along, thank you as well. As always, thank you to our sponsors here at the Hall of Fame. Be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series by following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and as well as YouTube. Uh, you can also listen to Hall Call Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Once again, I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.